Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer at this time. Our Father, we come before you just thinking of that wonderful promise that you have given us that is so beautifully represented in that song. Lord, that when all who come to you will find their rest. Lord, I think of the great prayer of Augustine who wrote that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So Father, as we come to this portion of your word, may we be washed by it. May we be cleansed. Lord, may your light shine upon us and the washing of your word come over us that we will once again find our hope and the building of our faith in you. Lord, be with me as I speak these words this morning. You know I am, I am so weak in and of myself. Lord, that there is, try as I might, there is no way that in my own strength or in the wisdom of any man that I can change a heart. But Lord, you can and you do all the time. And I pray that you would do it this morning once again. So Father, guide us now through the teaching of your word. May we not be here to have our ears tickled, to have our own preconceived notions confirmed, but Lord, only, only to hear from your word this morning. It is in your name we pray, amen. I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus chapter two. We're going to take a break from our Matthew study for probably the rest of the Advent season, uh, maybe even after the first of the year, but found a good place to pause in Matthew, and so we're going to do that. Matthew, uh, excuse me, Titus, I'm used to saying Matthew, I've been saying it all year, Uh, Titus chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14 this morning. And uh, it's not a very long passage, but um, since you're already seated, having just stood, uh, I'd invite you just to, just to remain in your seats and to just follow along in your copy of the Word of God uh, as, I, as I read uh, from the Word. Beginning in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself, for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. I was uh, listening. I have a podcast that I listen to every day, and it's uh, it's from Dr. Moeller. He's the president of Southern Seminary, and uh, that's kind of my alma mater. So, as a matter of pride, I kind of listen to him every day. Uh, I highly recommend it. He takes the he takes the news of the day and looks at it from a Christian uh, point of view. And so, but one of the things he talked about on Friday was Merriam-Webster every year. Uh, comes out with their word of the year. And they determine this by 
uh, how many web searches there is on their dictionary site, uh, people trying to find out what the definition of the word was. And I was delighted this year to hear that the word of the year this year is the term gaslighting. Gaslighting. Now, if you are unfamiliar with that term, let me tell you that I hear this word from my children all the time. And the reason why I was so delighted to find that this was the word of the year is to discover that I am not the only parent who was clueless as to what it meant. And so apparently there's a pandemic of that going around. And so the word gaslighting, it actually comes from a, a 1938 play that was made into a 1944 movie called Gaslit and, or Gaslight. And what happens is in the movie is that a husband is essentially trying to convince his wife that she is insane. And the way he does that is by using a... a uh, the, the lamps in their house that are powered by gas. And so, hence the phrase gaslighting. He is convincing her that she didn't really see what she saw or she didn't really know what she knew or anything like that. And so that's what the word gaslighting means. It means to try to tell somebody that what you saw you didn't really see, uh, what you think you know you don't really know, and basically causing a person, it's a kind of manipulation that causes a person to question their very perception of reality. And I guess the reason why that caught my attention so much is number one, because my kids use it so much and accuse me of it so much. But um, the, the other reason why is because where Titus, we're in the book of Titus and he is on an island called Crete and the Cretan island was actually very well known for doing stuff like this. In fact, Paul even mentions it in chapter one, verse 12. If most of us don't even have to turn our Bibles, if you look there, he mentions a Cretan, one of their own prophets says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And I want you to understand that what he's referring to there is not that Cretans are always just trying to one-up each other with lies, but what's actually happening is that the Cretan island was actually very well known for taking the religious myths of other cultures and kind of rewriting it to themselves. If you're a Star Trek fan, maybe you remember the sixth movie where the crew of the Enterprise is, is, um, is having dinner with the Klingons and one of them quotes Shakespeare and, and I can't remember who it was. He says, oh, you've read Shakespeare and the Klingon says, yes, you haven't really read Shakespeare until you've read it in the original Klingon. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's the kind of things that the Cretans would do. Like, for example, they said that Zeus was not born on Mount Olympus. He was actually born on a mountain on their island. And guess what? That's also where he died. And they claimed to have the tomb of Zeus. And you can imagine how well that went for the rest of the Greek and Roman Empire. When an island is claiming that they have the grave of your God, uh, they don't like that. And so they had a really bad reputation. There's even some evidence that some of the Jews were starting to say there's a big Jewish civilization there, and they were even starting to say that, that you know, God had led them to Crete and not, to the, not to, to the promised land and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just they had a history of doing this kind of stuff. And I, I, I think we're kind of familiar with this, aren't we? Because think about how our culture has taken the holy 
holy things of our faith and appropriated them to themselves. I mean, probably one of the biggest examples of this is weddings. It's like, it's like everyone has forgotten that a wedding service is a worship service. And yet we've so commercialized it now to where even Christians, even a lot of Christians don't even recognize that anymore. But I think in the Christmas season, I think the biggest thing that's on all of our mind is the commercialization of Christmas. And how, and, and again, I mean, there's good and bad to it, just like everything, but one of the things I hate about it is how they've taken the Christian message of Christmas and they flipped it on its head so that now Christmas is about being good enough to get presents. That's what we teach our kids. That if you are good, then you will receive presents. Beloved, that is an anti-gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel, the message of Advent, is that we can never be good enough, and that is why God has given us the greatest gift of all, his son, Jesus Christ. And so, you know, none of the things that we do around Christmas season, the lights and all that stuff, they're not bad in and of themselves, but I'm afraid a lot of times Christians get so wrapped up in the cultural Christmas that we don't stop and reflect what is the meaning of Christmas. And more than that, how does it impact our daily lives? You know, the message is not just about a baby in a manger. It is about a Savior who saves us. And that Savior went on to live past that manger. And so... The question is, what do we, what do, we do? Our, our, my hope this morning is to encourage us, as this text talks about, to be zealous for good works. Why? Because we're reflecting on what Jesus has done for us in his coming to earth. That's my hope. And I want you to look at verse 11 with me just real quick. Because he says here in verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. And, and that term appeared, if, if you write in your Bibles, you might want to underline that because that is, a, that is a very precious term. Because in the form that it appears in here, all it ever talks about is the coming of Jesus Christ. But you may also remember that in the Old Testament, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and when this word in this form is used in the Septuagint, it almost always refers to the coming of Yahweh himself. And so Paul is taking this word from the Old Testament that means specifically a, a technical term that means the appearance of Yahweh on the day of the Lord. And he's saying that now that day has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only has he appeared once, but you look down in verse 13 and you see the exact same word again, referring to his second advent that is coming. So beloved, this morning, the message of the season is that God himself came into our world to bring salvation, to make it available for all people. Not just the Jews, not just one class of people, not just, but Everyone, salvation is available to all people. And what does that salvation look like? What does that salvation look like? How does that message impact our daily lives? And, and what we find in this text is that it impacts us. There's three outcomes as we reflect on this and as we grow in this message. 
There's three outcomes that we see. And so first, he says here in verse 13, no, excuse me, in verse 12, the, he, he says that for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. What does that look like? Verse 12, number one, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The first thing we see, the first outcome is that it trains us, it causes us to desire to resist sin. A desire to resist sin. The word, it says it teaches us, it instructs us. That, that's a lot like a parent who is instructing a child how to grow, nurturing, training them, bringing them up. And that grace of God that has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, it nurtures us or it trains us like a parent bringing up a child in the nurture and training of the Lord. There's a practical example of this in Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, For fathers, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So we see that, that nurturing, that training that he does for those who are his children. In fact, that text goes on to say that if you're not experiencing this nurturing, if you're not experiencing this training, then you are an illegitimate child. You're not actually born again. And so going back to Titus, what does it say? We, he trains us in two different ways to renounce sin, to resist sin. And the first thing we resist is wrong actions. It says to renounce ungodliness. That's kind of a general term that refers to basically any kind of action that is not in keeping with uh, godliness or God's character. You know, we talk all the time in, in church, maybe you've heard this before, where there are really two kinds of sin. You have sins of commission. Those are things that we do that we shouldn't do. But then there is also sins of omission, where we don't do the things that we should do. And the, this term, ungodliness, is referring to all of that. It's referring to the whole gamut of sin, the whole uh, smorgasbord, if you will, and all the different ways that it reveals itself. It's just a general term. <clears throat> but it also teaches us to resist wrong desires. He goes on, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Worldly passions. Salvation teaches us not only to merely reject wrong actions, it's not just behavioral, but it also teaches us to control the desires that cause those wrong actions to begin with. Some, listen, sometimes these desires, sometimes these passions can be so strong that they seem almost impossible to resist. I've talked to many addicts who, who talk about how this drug, this chemical that they're addicted to, the alcohol, whatever it is, it literally calls them. It, it literally, it feels like it's summoning them and they cannot resist its call. And, and there's, there's desires and passions that we have. And you hear people talk all the time how I had this thing that I, I just had to do. I could not help myself. Beloved, that is never true of the Christian. That is never true of the child of God. It may seem that way, but it isn't. In fact, look what Hebrews says in chapter four, verse 15. We know this verse well. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but watch this, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Beloved, God, Jesus, understands the temptation that you face. He understands the desires that you're going through. He has faced all of that temptation, and he came out. He won victory over it in his life. He won victory over it in his death. Never once did he feel the relief of giving in to a sin that tempted him. He remained absolutely true, and now he offers that victory to you in salvation. It may feel like you have no choice, but beloved, in Christ, you have the power to resist sin. Not just the wrong behavior, but even the very desires that produce it. Christ does not look down from his high chair in heaven and say, now you boys, you boys and girls, you better get it right. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why because Jesus is watching you. Beloved, that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's true, but it's not the gospel. (laughs) The gospel is that we have a high priest who has come and lived our lives. He has experienced the temptations. He has experienced all the weaknesses, and he won victory, and now he offers his strength to you. In salvation, you have a choice. You have the ability. And I can't think of a better place that this principle is demonstrated than the whole book of 1 Corinthians. The whole book of 1 Corinthians. Corinth was a messed up church. You think, you think Calvary's got problems, dude? Does not even, there's not a church in the world that doesn't have problems, but Corinth takes the cake. All right, Corinth had problems that Greek legends were built from, all right? I mean, just, uh, just crazy stuff. And, and Paul is writing to this church, and there's several times in the book that, he, uh, that, that the tone that he uses, uh, uh, what would you say, he's taking them out behind the woodshed, and uh, he's getting on to them. But you know what Paul does? And every time that he looks to correct something specific in the Corinthians in that book, read read through the book this week and look for this. Look how many times he comes back to the gospel. And look how many times and how many different ways he goes back to the gospel. Even our, that's what he's even doing in our passage. We read every, every time we do communion and, and he addresses communion. What's he doing? He's bringing them back to the gospel. He's demonstrating that through communion, th- through that gospel picture, this is why we have these meals together and why we should be waiting for one another and all the things that he says. Every single time he reminds them of the gospel over and over again. Why? Because you and I are like a sailboat out in the middle of the ocean. And yeah, Paul gives us the GPS. He gives us the map. He gives us the star charts. But beloved, without the wind, your sailboat's going nowhere. And yes, Paul gives us the GPS. He gives us the star charts. He gives us the maps and all that. But beloved, the gospel is the wind that pushes the sails. The gospel is the wind And without the wind, all the best technology you can have in a sailboat does not do you any good at all. It's like the gas in your engine. You can have have the most fancy car in the world. 
What's the most expensive car? Some of you, some of you car gurus out there, what's, the, what's like the best car you could have? What's gonna happen to it if it runs out of gas? I guess not in the case of a Tesla because they don't use, what's gonna, what's gonna happen? Let's say fuel, okay? What's gonna happen whether electric or gasoline, smart Alec, what's gonna happen if it runs out of fuel? It's going nowhere. It's just gonna rot. It's gonna rot in your driveway, right? The gospel is the fuel to the engine. It's the, it's the electricity to the battery. I don't know how that works. It, it's the gas to your engine. And so it teaches us to resist sin. It helps us to change direction and not, not just from sin. And that's the negative side, but, but let's move on to the positive side. What, what does it teach us to do? What does it teach us to do? And it, it, not just from sin, but to Christ-likeness. What, look what it says. It says it, renounce, it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and world, worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It not only teaches us, it not only gives us a desire to resist sin, but it gives us a desire to reflect Christ, to reflect Christ. Paul says that this salvation, don't think of it as merely negative, but he gives us, it transforms us. Salvation has a transforming power. In fact, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Look what he says there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And look at how total that transformation is. It's not that you've been given a new, li- a new leaf to turn over. It's not that you've been given a new start in life. You've been given a new life to start with, to start over. You are a new creation, and it is total. And look what that new creation allows us to do. It says here, he says that to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That's what it means to reflect Christ. Look, look how total this transformation is. He says to live self-controlled. Now, some of your translations say sensibly. Some of your translations say soberly. That's more the, the older translation, right? But self-control is really what captures this because what's happening here is that we are not slaves to our desires, We are not slaves to the circumstances around us, but it allows us and it helps us to desire to live in a manner that is consistent with what we know and what we believe. You see, beloved, even though we believe that Christ is Lord, even though we believe that God is our Father, that the Holy Spirit indwells us, the truth is our desires don't always match those beliefs, do they? Why not? Because we're sinners. Because we still have this indwelling flesh nature. We, we, are, we are redeemed from within, but our lives are a process of removing the grave clothes that surround us, this flesh. And so what self-control is, is self-control gives us the ability, it is the power from Christ to live in a way that is consistent with what we know, not necessarily how we feel in the moment, okay? That's what we're talking about here. Beloved, listen, I'm I'm just gonna be honest with you. I don't always want to pray. 
I don't always want to read my Bible. I don't always want to study. You say, you're a pastor. Should you be saying this? Yeah, why? Because I'm a sinner. I still have an indwelling flesh nature. I'm, I still struggle with this. And it's gonna be a battle for the rest of my life, just like it is for you. But beloved, what the grace of God teaches us is to have self-control, to act in a way that is consistent with what we know, not necessarily with what we feel at the time. Do you ever feel like your prayers are going no higher than the ceiling? But you know better, don't you? And so self-control is acting with what we know. We feel like our prayers aren't getting higher than the ceiling, but we know they are, so we pray anyway, right? That's what we're talking about. That's self-control. That's our inward change. But he also changes us outwardly to live self-controlled, upright lives. This is the same word as, as justification. It's, it's related, and it speaks of, an, of righteousness, in other words, the inner change that is happening within us results in outward behavioral change. There is always going to be fruit of salvation. There is always going to be change that is reflected in our lives. And so we're not simply talking about uh, a behavioral modification. We're not just talking about behavioral modification. Uh, is that a word? We're not just talking about behavioral modification but we're talking about change that comes from within the heart. It's from the inside out. And so we're talking about change that comes from inside out, that is produced in the heart from a new life, and it works its way out in our lives. We're talking about outward change, behavioral change. Listen, we're not talking about perfection, okay? You and I know that we will never be sinless on this earth, but we can sin less. And that's our goal. That's what we want. We desire to have sin less of a hold in our lives. And so there's outward behavior, but there's also this last one, to live godly lives. There's also upward change. Our lives reflect a new relationship to God, to whereas before we wanted to live on our own dime, we wanted to do our own thing, now we joyfully live under his authority. We joyfully live under his word. We joyfully submit <clears throat> to the word of God. There's, there's a reverence toward him. <clears throat> we live in light of who he is and what brings him the most glory, not bringing us the most satisfaction. Understand, beloved, that there's gonna be times that doing things that are for the glory of God are going to go directly against what we want. We need to understand that, and we need to be okay with that because that's the joy that comes from the Lord, living joyfully under <clears throat> in submission to his authority that comes from his word. Why is this so important? When I was a youth pastor, um, every year, I would watch the MTV Music Awards. Now, I would, I would watch this every year, and... It was decadent, it was, it was um, filthy. I mean, it, 
I felt like I needed a shower after, every year after watching it. I mean, the way these people would act and the, and the hijinks they would do and, and all the things they would talk about and, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it was, it was just absolutely filthy, but I watched it every year. You want to know why? And keep in mind, this is before the years of YouTube influencers and, and all that kind of stuff. I'd watch it every year because in one night, I would learn more about youth culture and why they act the way they do and why they are responding to things the way they are and their worldview on life and how they view the world. I would learn more about my kids in one night watching the MTV Music Awards than I would the rest of the year. Why is that? Because God in his sovereign creation, he, watch this guys, and this is true for all of us, okay? God created us to be imitators. God created us to be imitators, right? I never will forget, uh, there was a, a matter of fact, that same youth group, there was, a, there was a guy that was coming to our youth and he was goth. You ever seen one of these kids? Black shoes, black jeans, black shirt, black hair, black lips, black eyebrows, pasty white skin. And I remember asking him one time, I was like, why in the world do you dress like that? And he goes, I dress like this because it expresses my individuality and expresses that I am not someone who's going to conform with the rest of the world and what other people expect of me. I'm going to live my own life and be my own person. I said, okay. And then in the lunchroom, he went over and sat down by 15 other kids who were dressed and looked exactly like him. We are designed by nature to be imitators. That's how God designed us. And in, a, and in our perfection, in our glorification, we will imitate Christ. But in our fallenness, we will still imitate somebody. And that somebody will be the person who we admire. We imitate those people who we admire. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He talks about how we all with unveiled face beholding, watch, watch, watch the sequence here, beholding the glory of the Lord and then what results from that are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beloved, we act like we imitate those whom we admire, especially kids, but we all do it. How many times did you say, I sounded just like my mother just now? Or how many times have you said, boy, I just sounded just like my father, didn't I? Right? Even though you swore you wouldn't when you were a kid. Why do you do that? Because human beings are imitators. And that's why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We will imitate the one that we admire most. And that's why we need to be beholding the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ and build our admiration of him so that we will imitate him and not the idols of the culture. That's why we must do that. And so it says that's how the grace of God trains us. It trains us how to live in a way that reflects Christ. And we will do that as we grow in our love for Christ. Ever seen a couple that's been married for 60, 70 years and they actually kind of start to look like each other? You know, they, 
They, they have the same facial expressions and they do all that. Some, some of your wives are looking at your husbands going, oh dear. But, but it happens, doesn't it, right? It happens. Because you start to imitate the person whom you love. And beloved, being like Christ comes from loving Christ. You cannot behold the glory of God and not fall in love with him. It's irresistible. It's, it's grace unmeasured. It, is, it, it woos us to him. It draws our love and our affections to him. That's what the grace of God teaches us, the beauty of Christ. That's why I think it's such a tragedy. And you walk into the average bookstore today and you say, Show me, you'll find all kinds of self-help books. And this is Christian bookstores. You'll find all kinds of self-help books. You'll find ethics books. You'll find books on the latest political things and, and all that stuff. But you'll ask, show me the shelf where the books about Jesus are. And they'll point you to one little shelf. It's not even full in the back of the store. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. We should be looking to Christ in every way possible every way possible. I got to move on. And so that love, beloved, why do we sin? Why do we sin? We sin because we love it. And the only way to replace a love, the only way to fall out of love for something is to replace it with a greater love. That's the only way you can do it. And so the grace of God appears to to show us Christ, that we will grow in our love for him. And as we do, as we, as we reflect Christ, we will desire to see Christ. We will desire to see Christ. Look, this is really verses 13 on. He says, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing, that word again, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I, I can make a whole sermon out of those two verses. And for lack of time, I'll, I'll just kind of hit the high points. But you notice it says that we reflect Christ in this present age. But if we stopped right there, we might be accused of being moralist. We might be accused of simply saying that Christianity is just about good behavior. And so Paul doesn't leave it there, but he goes on. And he says, it's not just about reflecting Christ in this present age, but it is also about waiting to see Christ in the coming age. We're waiting to see him. He's going to appear. He's going to come. We're going to see that blessed hope, that blessed appearance. And it is in that hope that we are saved. And so he, I want you to understand, beloved, why this hope is so important. Because as, no matter how mature in Christ we become in this present age, there's always gonna be two things that are true in this world. Number one is that it will be true in this present age is that we will suffer in this world. We are living in a fallen world. And sometimes we suffer not because we've sinned, not because we've done anything else, but simply that the world is fallen 
and I love how Martin Luther put it, that we are simultaneously saints, sinners, and sufferers. And in this present age, there will always be that contradiction. And in this world, we will always suffer. That's why the lie of our culture that if you are struggling with depression or if you are struggling with anxiety or worry, then there's something wrong with you. Beloved, no, we will always suffer. That is always gonna be present in this world. And I'm not saying just grin and bear it, but I am saying that you're not abnormal. There's a whole section called abnormal psychology. And I just want to hit them over the head with your textbook and say, this is normal. Suffering is the normal experience of this life because we live in a sin-fallen, sin-sick world. And it will always, we will always suffer. And that's why we wait. It's to this blessed hope that we are saved. This blessed hope. And what is that hope? The appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I cannot leave that verse without saying something about it. Stephen's smiling. He's, he knows where I'm going. <laughs> because this is such a high Christology. You know what that means? This is such a high statement of Christ that Paul makes. Do you understand what he just did there? Imagine if I'm taking you on a tour of our church and I bring you into this room and I say, this is the sanctuary and worship center of our church. What did I just do? I took the word the, and then I connected two words by the word and, but what am I doing? I'm not talking about two different rooms, am I? I'm talking about the same thing. This is the sanctuary and worship center of our church. We do this all the time. This is my son and favorite child. That's what my mom always says about me. So she's talking about the same person, right? This is, you know, and you can fill in the blank. And what Paul is doing here is he says that we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory, watch this, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not talking about God the Father and Jesus. Both of those words refer to Jesus Christ. He is both our great God and he is our savior. It's called, a, it's a grammatical rule. It's called the Granville Sharp rule. You don't need to know that. Just know that this is such a high statement of Paul's view of Christ. Don't fall for the lie that our culture tells sometimes that the, that the early church did not believe that Christ was God. Paul says it very clearly right here. And beloved, when he comes, he is our coming, our great God and Savior. And when he comes, he will make all things new. And that is when our suffering is over. That is when the suffering ends. That is when we come to the glorification and all the promises of salvation. So that's the first thing that will always be true is that we will suffer in this world. And second of all, the second thing is simply this. Our salvation will never be fully complete on this earth. We talked about this a little bit last week about how we live in the already not yet our salvation is inaugurated, it's begun, but it's not completed. 
That's why we shouldn't expect always to be healed, even though healing is part of the gospel. Don't, don't, don't let the word of faith people scare you from that. It is true. We will have new bodies in heaven. We will have new, we will have total restoration in heaven. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming, but it's not yet. We live in the already not yet. And so we will experience sickness. We will experience healing. Not, in fact, unless some accident happens, more than likely some sickness is the means by which God is gonna carry you to heaven. I mean, that's the way it mostly happens most of the time. It's not always God's plan to heal us on this earth, but it is God's plan to bring ultimate healing in the new creation. And I want you to see that that also applies to our, to our struggle with sin, our resisting sin and reflecting Christ's likeness, that, beloved, understand that we are gonna struggle with sin for the rest of our lives. There will never be a point, there's no second work of grace that's going to make you sinless. It's not coming. But there is glorification. And one day when we see Christ face to face, all the promises of your salvation will be kept. They will all find their yes in Jesus Christ. Are you facing pain now? It's temporary. Are you facing heartache now? He's gonna wipe away those tears. Are you facing anguish and grief? He'll be reunited with your loved ones. All of, the, all of those things are temporary. They are coming. The fullness of our salvation is coming, but it is not yet. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And to the day of Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews says that Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. What he started, he's going to finish. What he began, he's going to complete. There's so much we're waiting for and there's so much more I could say, but let me just kind of remind you that why do we celebrate this season? Why do we celebrate Christmas? It's because we know that he kept his promise the first time he will keep all of his other promises. That Jesus came just like he said. Jesus lived just like he said. Jesus died just like he said. And Jesus rose again just like he said. He has kept that promise, beloved. And because of that, you can be sure that he will keep all of his other promises he has given you in Christ. So cultivate these desires, the desire to resist sin, the desire to reflect and to see Christ. That great day is coming. So how can we cultivate this? Let me just give you a couple things real quick. Number one, always remember the grounds of your joy. The ground of your joy is in Christ. Yeah, the day may stink. You may be tired. You may be angry. 
things are not going your way. You can't afford as great of a Christmas this year as you could in years past. And you know that you don't want to disappoint your children. Whatever it is, beloved, remember the grounds of your joy. The true ground is always in Christ. And remind yourself of the hope that you have. In John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, all of those who hope this way in Christ purify themselves. Remember, reflect on the hope that is coming. We don't preach about that a lot. The enough, the, the, the coming of Christ. He is coming. And beloved, that, that hope inspires, it has a profound impact on how we feel and how we live today. Profound impact. Just like a child who desires to be a professional baseball player. And so what did they do? They watch game after game after game and they, they study it. They spend all their time in the batting cages and they do all of this stuff. Why? Because they have this hope that one day they'll be a ball player. And that hope has a profound impact on their actions and what they do today. And beloved, understand that you and I have a hope that will not fail. And that hope should have a profound impact on how we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Profound. And then number three, and here's the big one. That's probably the most important. Don't wait to want to develop your desire. Don't, don't depend on your current desires. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Don't wait until you want to pray to pray. Don't wait until you feel like praying to pray. If that's the only time you pray, you'll be doomed to shallowness. You'll be doomed to never growing or cultivating your joy. Paul understands this. Romans chapter six, verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of natural limitations for just as you once presented yourself, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, so now, in the same way, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Beloved, your current joys did not happen overnight. Your current desires did not happen overnight. You've cultivated them over many years of developing habits, developing taste for things, and all of that. And those things aren't going to transform overnight. And so don't wait on your desire. Don't wait until you want to pray. Have a set time every day. Set your alarm if you need to. Whatever you need to do. Use the prayer app, the Echo prayer app that, that we provide for you. And set timers on it so that you remember to pray every day. Cultivate those new desires the same way you did your old ones. And over time, you will see change you will see the work of God in your life. Father, we thank you for these wonderful messages, Lord. This, I know I didn't give it a lot of justice, but Lord, we thank you for what the season means. And I pray that it has its impact that you intend on our lives. Father, there's one here today that they do not have the ground of joy in their heart. They do not know Christ as their Savior. Father, I pray today would be the day maybe something was said that has drawn them to yourself. Father, maybe there's someone here today and they don't have the joy. They're living in defeat. They're living in habits. They have sin they can't 
defeat, habits they can't break. Father, I pray they would find their joy in you, that they would replace that love with a greater love for you. Whatever their need is, Lord, I pray you do business with our hearts this morning. Let's stand together and let's just sing together one verse of uh, I need you every hour. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to come. Maybe you are here and you need to know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you have received the word a while ago, but you need to confess your faith in baptism. Maybe you're done those things and you want to join a, a covenant family, a covenant church. Whatever it is, we invite you to come this morning. Maybe you just say, Randy, I have no joy, but would you pray for me? But I would. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come. As we sing this song together, I need you every hour.